Coming up next, Real Israel Talk Radio, episode 98. The people who wrote the Dead Sea Scrolls were interested tremendously in everything which is eternal, cyclical, pre-calculated and stable. They were not interested in what is uh, passing by by what is accidental, by what is here today and not tomorrow. They were interested only in the eternal, in the sun rising every day and sun setting. Shalom, I'm Avi ben Mordechai. This is Real Israel Talk Radio, episode 98. Today's show is part two of a multi-part series about the discoveries in the Judean desert and the Dead Sea Scrolls Qumran community. About 20 centuries ago, many hundreds of documents from a written library of scrolls were carefully placed into clay jars and deposited for safekeeping into many of the western caves of Israel's Dead Sea region. The area is referred to as the Qumran. Between 1947 and 1956, the discovery of the scrolls has captured the attention of numerous academics, religious leaders, and biblical researchers emerging from all walks of life. By the 1990s, the ancient scrolls were deciphered, translated, and published. Consequently, they were made widely available for anyone with an interest in the study of these ancient documents. An analysis of the scrolls through the eyes of the many researchers and translators involved in the project will provide us with some unique insights into the spiritual and cultural issues of the day, set within the context of what is called the Jewish Second Temple Period. To help us better understand the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Qumran community, and their library of documents, in what has come to be called Discoveries in the Judean Desert, and why the Dead Sea Scrolls are such an important discovery, you will be presented with an interview that I recorded with Dr. Rachel Elior, the John and Golda Cohen Professor of Jewish Philosophy and Mystical Thought at Hebrew University of Jerusalem. Since the early 1970s, Professor Elior's academic positions include visiting lecturer at University College London, Princeton University, Chicago University, and research fellow at Oxford. Professor Elior has also earned many academic excellence awards from a large cadre of well-respected universities and study centers from all around the world. Dr. Elior's books, awards, and writings are quite extensive. With special thanks to the Littman Library of Jewish Civilization, join me now in welcoming to Real Israel Talk Radio, Professor Rachel Elior of Hebrew University, Jerusalem. Thank you very much. Uh, will you kindly just give us a little bit of a background on who you are, where you've been? I'm a scholar of Jewish mysticism. Now, mysticism is wherever the imaginary is meeting the realistic. Wherever people are telling us about their dreams, their visions, their aspirations, their new ideas, their utopias, 
all that could be defined as mysticism because mysticism means where everything could be utterly different, where everything could be unbelievable because it is not to be judged according any practical or realistic measures, but only according to the dream, vision, imagination, and things like that. So in Jewish mysticism that I've been studying really since 1969, There is a great interest in angels and in heavenly worlds. Mm-hmm. The common denominator about those two is that they're invisible. We cannot see angels, we can hear them. We cannot see upper seven firmaments, we can imagine. And there is a great literature called Sifruta Hechalot, which means the literature of the upper shrines or the upper sanctuaries, the first half of the first millennium of the common era. This literature is replacing the lost earthly temple that was raised into the ground between 70-235. There was no more Jerusalem and there was no more temple. But people who were poets and who were mystics, who were priests and who were Levites, were creating in their beautiful literary imagination a whole mystical world about seven heavenly firmaments and 24 watches of angels or angelic watches and heavenly shrines. Mm. Now, we didn't know how did it start and where did it come from because in the common world of the sages, angels were not welcome. Heavenly firmaments called the heavenly chariots were not allowed to be discussed. And yet, While the sages did not promote those topics, the priests and Levites of the synagogue circles were very much interested in that. And about 1987, I was in a sabbatical at Oberlin College in Ohio, a lovely place, and I was looking for a book. But entirely by accident, there was one single big green book with gold letters On it was written Songs of the Sabbath Liturgy by Carol Newsom. I was amazed because I never heard on Songs of the Sabbath Liturgy. You know, I wouldn't say that I read every Hebrew book, but I can say that I certainly heard most of them. I never heard on Shirot or Lat HaShabbat, Songs of the Sabbath Liturgy. And I was taken by surprise. I picked the book and I was looking through and I was absolutely amazed because I saw there angels and heavenly firmaments that I've never had seen before. I didn't know nothing about it. I didn't study before the Dead Sea Scrolls. As I saw Hebrew quotations and English translations about angels, about Sheva Merkavot, seven heavenly chariots, about seven dvirim, holy arches, all those things, I said, wow, here, this is the foundation of what I'm familiar with mm. in later Hechalot literature. Of course, it was only an immediate observation. I found the book and I was taken by it and I spent the whole entire sabbatical year studying the Dead Sea Scrolls, which were available then, instead of what I was intending to do originally. <laughs> so when I read this fantastic, beautiful poetry, As I said, it, in Hebrew, it is called Shirot Olat HaShabbat. Mm-hmm. In English, Songs of the Sabbath Liturgy, or Songs of the Sabbath Sacrifice, rather the more precise name. Mm-hmm. The word Ola is the biblical word for sacrifice. We're supposed to offer Olat HaTamid, Olat HaShabbat, Olat HaMusafim, Olat HaChodesh. Ola is the 
eternal cycles of daily sacrifices only in the temple, nowhere else. Only priests are commanded to do that. Only the temple uh, person is the place to do that, which is connected to that, is entirely Levitical priestly responsibility. It's not anything voluntary. It's not something a usual person does. It's only part of the priestly worship. As I said, I was completely fascinated mm. by the fact that there was there a whole book talking about angelic priests offering the heavenly sacrifice, wow. which corresponded to the literature that I was working on, Sifruta Heichalot, corresponding to the Mishnah in the Talmud time. While the book that I found entirely by mistake, Songs of the Sabbath Sacrifice, belonged to the last few centuries before the Common Era. And yet, both corpuses are interested in the very same topics. We can say it in one word. They are interested in the heavenly chariot. They are interested in the angelic watches. They are interested in eternal cycles of sacrifice, holy time, holy place, holy memory, and holy ritual. Since I was working on those foundations of Jewish mysticism, I took a great interest in the new world of the Dead Sea Scrolls that I found entirely via the mystical avenue, not in comparison to the Bible, not in comparison to any other thing, I was interested mm. in the mystical heritage reflected in this literature in an unprecedented way. And as I said, I started to read every page of the Dead Sea mm. Scrolls that was available in the late 80s. There weren't that many. There were a few books which were printed. By that time, there was the uh, Temple Scroll. There was the Scroll of Psalms of Light against the Sun of Darkness, but nothing in comparison to the 41 volumes of the DJD, which became available at the very end of the 90s. Professor Emmanuel Tov, professor of biblical scholarship from the Hebrew University and expert on the Septuagint mm -hmm. and the various versions of the Bible in different communities. He is an expert of those topics, and he became the editor of the new publication of the Dead Sea Scrolls in the series uh, produced by the Oxford University Press. It is called DJD, Discoveries of the Judean Desert. Every scholar of this field is working with those huge green, uh, 41 green volumes, mm -hmm. which are discussing each one of the texts that we have among the Dead Sea Scrolls, not including the uh, Pentateuch, mm -hmm. but just about everything else. Now, 40 volumes, it means that every volume has the origin in Hebrew or in Aramaic, and the translation into English or French, respectively. So anyone who knows Hebrew can read only the Hebrew part, and anyone who doesn't know Hebrew can read the English and compare it to the Hebrew to the extent of his knowledge. However, it is freely available in every good university library, and everyone can mm. check for herself and for himself what is it all about. It is absolutely mm. fascinating literature. Mm. Now, you may ask me, what is the most important things about the finding of the Dead Sea Scrolls? I would say it gives us a whole new insight on Jewish history. It tells us about things we didn't know anything about. There are books we never heard about their existence. For instance, nobody knew before the scrolls were found, and they were found in a very historical date. 
in the date that the United Nations had declared on the establishment of the State of Israel, Professor Lipa Sukenik from the Hebrew University mm-hmm. had received a phone call from his friend from the Assyrian monastery, Marata, Marshmoel Athanasius. He said, Professor Sukenik, come, come around. You must come immediately. I got from my Bedouin friends some unbelievable ancient Hebrew text. Professor Sukenik couldn't believe his ears. We never found text, you know. Parchment and papyri cannot withstand thousands of years of wet weather, of rain, of water, of changes of weather. So most documents from before thousands of years are lost to us just because they are not withstanding the atrocities of time. So Sukenik said, I'm leaving everything, I'm running to you. And he looked at it and he was fascinated. Only it was a very bad timing because, as I said, it was the very day that the United Nations declared on the state of Israel, 29 November 1947, and shooting started immediately. Why is it that it took so long for these texts to be brought out into the public. I mean, you're talking 1947, November, but they really were not made available publicly on a large scale until uh, the 1990s. I mean, why was that so long in, in waiting? Well, actually, there were many legends about it, but facts are very simple. When the word had come out that it is something of great interest, and many people would be interested in that, the Bedouins who are living along the Dead Sea said, we have heard that there is a great market for ancient scripts. Let's try to see if we can find some more. You know, it was businessing. They didn't care for the cultural importance of it, to the religious importance of it, to the historical importance of it, none whatsoever. They were interested in the money that they could make out of selling them. So the scrolls that were put in the caves in the desert alongside the Dead Sea shores, they were kept intact fantastically for thousands of years, were torn to pieces in order to sell them for better price. Anyhow, there was a great deal of vandalism there, but I would say only Mm. one thing about it. They didn't mean to destroy any cultural value. They sought on it only as something that you can sell and buy. They didn't do it for religious reasons. They didn't do it for cultural reasons. They did it only as market reasons. Are you saying that the fragments that we have, the thousands of fragments, are you saying they were not fragments when they were found? Well, some of them were definitely not fragments. Some of them were whole. Some of them were beautiful, beautifully whole. Some of them were torn. Some of them were fragments. Now, what exactly was the situation? Whether all of it was whole or whether they were torn to pieces, we just know one thing. We had thousands of little pieces, like think on a huge jigsaw puzzle, thousands of pieces that had to be assembled together. Only later, Professor Stegemann from Germany Mm -hmm. found a system how to assemble together pieces who were not assembled originally in the way that we received it. But when things were torn, it's very hard to put them together. 
Hmm. Now, you may put successfully any text that you are familiar with. If I'll tear, God forbid, a piece of Psalms, you can reassemble it with certainty according to the well-known version of the Psalm. But hundreds of them were of uh, texts that were utterly unknown to us. Hmm. These scrolls are telling us things that we didn't dream about. We hmm. didn't know anything about them. We found that there is this scroll of the sons mm. of light against sons of darkness. Mm-hmm. How would we assemble it if we got torn pieces of it? We don't know the structure. We don't know the sentence. We don't know the order. So people worked for years and years and years to assemble together what was torn. And because of that, it took so long. And the remains of the scrolls were dispatched among various scholars around the world. Now, the Jordanians, who were the holders of the scrolls from 47 to 67, in Hmm. those 20 years, they did not allow any Jewish scholars to deal with them, nor they allowed any Israeli scholars. Ah. Now, the scrolls mostly are written in Hebrew. Only after the Six-Day War, there was a possibility to start to integrate Israeli scholars and Jewish scholars into the study of the scrolls. We never exclude anybody. We say this is a world heritage. Mm. We would like the cooperation of every scholar of every religion, gender, nationality to be part of the study of it because there is so much to study. Now, we can divide it in a general way to four sections, again, in a very general way. It's not Mm -hmm. precise, only just to make order. About a quarter of the scrolls would be part of the biblical library. So that's very easy, you know, if we have the scroll of Shmuel, Samuel, and we have the book of Samuel, I can say for sure, this is part of the biblical section of the Dead Sea Scrolls. I am speaking with Professor Dr. Rachel Elior, the John and Golda Cohen Professor of Jewish Philosophy and Mystical Thought at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. We're discussing a number of topics concerning the Dead Sea Scrolls and the Qumran community. Is there a difference between our traditional Samuel in the Bible and the scroll Samuel? Absolutely. There are new chapters in the scrolls version of Samuel that we'd never had. You mean they were not reflected in the Masoretic text? Absolutely. They were excluded. Mm -hmm. In the scrolls, there is a different order and new chapters that were not known to us before the Mm. scrolls were revealed. Now, that might be the case on any other biblical book, but not necessarily so. It might be. There are parts of the biblical heritage which are part of the scrolls heritage, which is nearly precise one in 100%. But there are parts which are not. And sometimes it's enough that one word would be different. I'll give an example, if mm-hmm. I may. Yes. We are familiar with the verse, Neshalma parim isfatenu. Yes. We were offered the bull sacrifices from our lips. It's from uh, Hoshia. Okay. Yeah, okay. Mm-hmm. In the scrolls version, it is Neshalma pri misfatenu. We would offer a fruit of our lips, not parim, okay? not bulls, but pri, pri like fruit. So sometimes it could be one letter that gives you 
the alternative recension. So in every scroll, which is part of the biblical library known to us from the Masoretic version, mm -hmm. we may find some new illuminations, some different versions, some different order. It is fantastic. You know, it could be one word, no more, but it may illuminate the whole page or the whole chapter or the whole traditional recession. It's very, very interesting. It's beautiful, and you're expressing it well, so thank you. It's marvelous, really is. So, returning to the question, what is the importance of the scrolls? So, first of all, the first quarter of the biblical recensions, which are relating to the Masoretic recension, is a great happiness to any biblical scholar, to any person who is interested interested in the history of the Hebrew language, in the history of the biblical collection, in the history of the biblical editorial process. It is really like new illumination of the whole study. Nowadays, every biblical scholar who is engaged in study of any textual part of the Bible would first and foremost say, is there any part of the scroll library that is pertaining to the biblical book that I'm working on? Now, we found pieces of the Psalms, of Deuteronomy, of uh, Joshua, of Samuel, mm -hmm. but there are books which we have only tiny bits of them. Like, we would love to have a great deal of Genesis. We don't. We have parabiblical Genesis. That's where I would like to explain the second quarter of the scrolls library. If the first quarter is the biblical scrolls. Mm -hmm. The second one is like the Bible, para-biblical, meaning not committed to the version of the Masoretic Bible, but literature that takes the freedom to retell the Bible. In Hebrew, we call it mikra meshuchtav, rewritten Bible or para-biblical Bible. What does it mean? You may take one verse and rewrite a whole story around it. You may take a whole book and rewrite it according to your own ideological preference. I'll give an example. There is a verse in Genesis 5, 21, 24 verses telling us about Enoch, son of Yered, Hanoch ben Yered, the seventh of the family of men in the fifth chapter of uh, Genesis, talking about the history of the human race. Enoch is the seventh. We write his name E-N-O-C-H, Hanoch. Mm -hmm. Enoch is the seventh generation. On him it is said in the Masoretic Bible, And Enoch was walking with God, and then he was not because God had taken him. On this one verse, many books were written. One verse. Why Enoch was taken to heaven? And for what purpose he was taken to heaven? The short answer is, the word chinuch, education, is derived from his name in Hebrew. Enoch was taken to heaven to learn to read and write. In the chapter, which is before the story of the flood, we are told that the Son of God descended to earth and they saw the fair daughters of men. Now, the parallel text tells us that they were sent from heaven to earth to teach people to study, to read and write. But mm. instead of doing their mission, they were courting the fair daughters of men and they were mating with them. And giants were born, Nephilim, Anakim, Giborim, 
creatures which were partly heavenly and partly earthly, and there was no food for them. They were eating everything around them. There was no food because they were not born part of nature, part of creation. Mm. Everything that was created by God in the week of creation, food was provided for it, but not for creatures which were outside of nature, and nature did not provide for them any food. So they started to eat and devour everything around them, and the land was full of lawlessness or full of monstrosities or full of evil of any kind and color. Mm. And then the ground was shouting to heaven for help, and then God decided to bring the flood. This is the background story Mm. of why there was a flood. As I said, on one sentence, we learn that there are a whole books written on it in the library of the <laughs> Dead Sea Scrolls. Now ask me, what did Enoch learn as the first student by his angelic teachers? After <laughs> he was learning, reading and writing, he was taught to calculate the calendar. The people who wrote the Dead Sea Scrolls were interested tremendously in everything which is eternal, cyclical, pre-calculated, and stable. They were not interested in what is uh, passing by, by what is accidental, by what is here today and not tomorrow. They were interested only in the eternal, in the sun rising every day and sun setting in the fact that the moon would come every certain number of days in a fixed order. They were interested in the constant phenomena of nature and only in those that could be carefully observed and pre-calculated and known well ahead of time. I am speaking with Professor Dr. Rachel Elior at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. We're discussing the Dead Sea Scrolls and the Qumran community. And we'll continue after our break I'm Avi Ben Mordechai, and this is Real Israel Talk Radio. You're listening to Ancient Roads, Real Israel Talk Radio, Program 21, Episode 98. Welcome back to the podcast of Ancient Roads, Real Israel Talk Radio. Once again, here's your host, Avi Ben Mordechai. I am speaking with Professor Dr. Rachel Elior, the John and Golda Cohen Professor of Jewish Philosophy and Mystical Thought at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. We're discussing a number of topics of ancient Jewish theology, philosophy, and culture that was once lost to us, but because of the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, much of that information has now been restored to us. Let's now continue with our discussion about the discoveries in the Judean desert with Professor Dr. Rachel Elior. Enoch was the first person who learned how to calculate a calendar, which is starting by the fact that he was learned the sevenfold divisions, which is fantastic. He was not taught day and night. He was taught Sabbath, and I'll say it in Hebrew, Shabbatot, Shmitot, Veyovlin. Those are the divisions of time calculated by seven. The first one is every seven day there is a Shabbat. This is cyclical and eternal. From first week of creation until today, every seven days, according to the Jewish heritage, later uh, adopted by the Christian heritage and others, Mm -hmm. but according to the original Jewish tradition in the very beginning of Genesis, every seventh day 
all community members have to stop working and strike for work. In Hebrew, the word for strike and the word for Shabbat is the very same word, Shabbat mm-hmm. and Shvita. Strike is not against anybody. Strike is just not working. Shvita, you stop working, that's yes, all. exactly. Yeah. But nowadays, we do a Shvita against somebody, okay? You know, we are striking mm-hmm. against the government, mm-hmm. we're striking mm-hmm. against the climate change. Mm-hmm. But when I say Shabbat Shvita, there is no strike against. It is just not working. Mm-hmm. Making a profound change from your daily engagement. Six mm. days, mm. God and his people mm. are working. Mm. But in the seventh day, all, with no exception, must stop working exactly according to the divine pattern in the very first chapter of Genesis. Now, this is holy, and that's a point I would like to make. Mm-hmm. There is no commandment of work. There is a commandment of striking from work, okay? After <laughs> there was the sin in paradise, mm. God saying to Adam, you will never have no more free bananas. You would have to work from the ground. Shabbat is a holy commandment. It's not a punishment. It's a holy commandment. Work could be understood as you wish according to your changing circumstances. And please remember, work was not mm-hmm. in a nice office with electricity <laughs> and uh, water and tables and computers. Work was in the mud, in the fields, in the snow, in the rain, in the sun, in the desert. Enoch was taught in heaven that every seventh day, all must stop working. Then he was told that every seven years, there is a Sabbath of the land. In Hebrew, we call it Shemitah. The seventh year, Shavua, exactly as the seventh day. And Jubilee is after seven weeks of years had passed. And the 50th year, that is the Jubilee years. Every seventh day you stop from work, every seventh years you stop from work, and every seven sevenths of years you stop working, and we restart everything again, okay? All money debts are being released, all uh, slaves are being released, all commitments erased. After the big jubilee, you restart everything. This is the biblical order, exactly as every week after Shabbat, you start a new week. Now, Enoch was taught the sevenfold calendar, which is like historical calendar from creation until the end of days. Hmm. That is the biblical ideal priestly calendar. Then, after that, we may call it the audio calendar, audio like the one that you hear. Hmm. Mm -hmm. You heard about it. You don't see that. Shabbat doesn't look like any other day. Every day, the sunrise, the sunset. So it's not the visual, it's the story and the audio or the reading text that is telling you that Shabbat is a must, that Shemitah is a must, that Yovel is a must. Sabbath is a commandment, a fallow year is a commandment, and Jubilee year is a commandment. Those are non-negotiable commanding orders forever and ever. I Hmm. said before that the people who wrote those scrolls were interested in the eternal, the cyclical, and the everlasting. All that is repetitive and eternal. This leads me to then the question, how did Enoch understand or or how did the Qumran community, those who wrote these scrolls, how did they understand and or define a day? Was it uh, sunrise (laughs) to sunrise? Was it sunset to sunset as we do in Judaism today in the rabbinic way? I mean, how did that work? First of all, we have the 
story of Genesis. Mm-hmm. When you start counting, according to the biblical tradition, you start evening and morning. And mm-hmm. yet, I'm not sure that this is the calculation way and not only the literary way. Unlike other questions that I'm very definite about my answers, on this question, I'm hesitant because I did not study the question whether sunrise should be preliminary or whether uh, sunset should be first calculated because there are numerous uh, documents that are referring to the change of days and I did not look into all of them. And in fact, I'm waiting for the complete uh, publication of the biblical text from Qumran so we can look into the differences between the Masoretic and the Qumran style and then I would be able to say for sure. But what I would like to say is that it's the cyclical repetitive order that counts. The fact that the sun is rising every day Hmm. and it is setting down every day. This is the fantastic thing. They were interested in the eternal cycle. There is not many things you can be sure about. We know very little about the future, but the one thing we can say that according to the best of our knowledge, every day the sun rises in the east. In Hebrew, Mizrach is the place that the Mm. Shemesh Zorach, because the east you always know. The east is where the sun is rising, the Mizrach, the Zricha. It's always there. So I would suggest that we start counting from the sunrise of every day. Because this is the one and only thing that is absolutely sure, even in a heavy climate. You would notice the change between darkness and light. So mm. sunrise would be the starting of calculation, but I keep it on reservation. Maybe there is more knowledge about it that I'm not familiar with and more studies. So I would say mm-hmm. I suppose that we start with the sunrise, mm-hmm. but I do recall that Genesis starts with Vayhi Ere, Vayhi Boker. First there was night and then there was day. Do you think that uh, maybe where it says Vayhi Ere, Vayhi Boker, Yom Hashishi, was that possibly manipulated by later scribes, later people who turned that around and... Maybe it said Bokil first. How do we know? Or do we know? I never offer answers on speculative basis. I don't recall a textual example where such a manipulation had been done. There is a tradition. Now, we may assume that there was more than one recension. But the recension that we are familiar with that came down to us with the generation is the Masoretic Genesis. However, let me sum up one sentence from before and proceed to the other uh, question that we left behind. Enoch was taught how to calculate the calendar. I started with the audible part of the calendar, which is always sevenfold. I would like to follow to the visual side of the calendar, which means everything that you see by your eyes. You see by your eyes sunrise and sunset. Hmm. You see the months which are changing according to the moon. And we see the four seasons of the year, which are changing by our eyes. You know, if we see red leaves, we know it's autumn. If we see uh, blooming of the almond tree, it is spring. We know the change of nature uh, is connected to the four seasons of the year. Enoch was taught that, how to calculate it. He was told 
that there are 364 days in every year, mm. and every year is composed of four equal parallel seasons. So 91 days would be in every season, mm. and 91 times four is 364. Each one of these seasons would start always on Wednesday, which is the day of the creation of the luminaries. So if you know that we have four seasons, and every one of those seasons have 91 days, and each one of the four seasons, you know the date of every day of the Tkufal. It's really brilliant calendar. Now, I don't relate to the question whether it is scientifically correct. It's not the science that I'm interested mm. in of the calendar, not at all. It's the culture. It's the religion. It's the significance. Professor, did we have a definition for this Hebrew term tkufa ever before finding the Dead Sea Scrolls? Did we know what that word meant? It comes from lehakif, uh, to encircle the different cycles of the circle of the sun. We have four tkufot. The importance of it is not one tkufa, it's four tkufot. Any of us that are familiar with the floors of the synagogues in Israel, there is always a zodiac of 12 Hmm. portions, and there are always, always four seasons in the corners. It's like a big square or a big rectangle that has in the four corners four names of the tkufot. Tkufat Aviv, Tkufat Stav, Tkufat Kaitz, Tkufat Chom. Try to imagine the calendar exactly according to this drawing. Hmm. In the middle, there are 12 sections which correspond to the 12 gates of the Zodiac. Imagine that the head of the sky, or the Kipata Shamayim, the cosmic cover of the sky, is divided to 12 equal portions. It's called gates of heaven or gates Mm -hmm. of the sky. They correspond to the 12 months that we know if we do start the counting properly from the vernal equinox going to the longest day of the year, from the longest day of the year to the autumnal equinox, from the autumnal equinox to the shortest day of the year. Hmm. That's what Enoch was studying from the angels, that 91 days would make a season. In each season, there are three months of 30 days each. The third month and sixth month and ninth month and twelfth month would always have 31 days. This is an extra day. It's not a monthly day. It's an extra day. It's called Yom Pagua, a meeting day, because that's the day that you meet the new season. So let me repeat. If every season starts on Wednesday, each one of the four seasons, it would be the first of Nisan, the first of Tammuz, the first of Tishrei, and the first of Tevet. In English, the first of the first month, the spring, the first of the fourth month, the month of the summer, mm-hmm. Tammuz, the first of the autumn month, Tishrei, and the first of the winter month, Tevet. So it would be the first, the fourth, the seventh, and the tenth, according to the Jewish calendar. I am speaking with Professor Dr. Rachel Elior, the John and Golda Cohen Professor of Jewish Philosophy and Mystical Thought at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. We're discussing a number of topics concerning the Dead Sea Scrolls and the Qumran community. The first season would always start on the vernal equinox. The second season would always start on Wednesday, on the longest day, summer solstice. 
on the third one would always start on the autumnal equinox on Wednesday, and the fourth one would always start on the winter solstice. So you had four seasons which are completely equal, which each one has three months. The third month mm-hmm. would have an appendix day, Yom Pagua. Mm-hmm. Each one of them is 91 days. Now, for this calendar, you have no need for the moon. You need only mathematics. Mm-hmm. Now, you may ask, why 91? They needed a number that is divided by seven. For them, the holy number is seven. Calendar which could not be divided by seven worth nothing. So 364 is divided by 7 into 52 weeks. Hmm. 364 is divided by 4 to 91 days section, and each one of the 91 days uh, season is divided by 7 to 13 weeks or 13 Shabbatot, 13 Sabbaths. Very interesting, Professor. So we have fantastic calendar pertaining to the sevenfold division of holy time, to mm. the visual time of the four seasons, and to the numerical time of 364 days. Okay, continue. I would like to add that they knew perfectly that a solar year, full scientific solar year, is 365 and a quarter. That was known from the Ptolemaic time. Mm-hmm. and even earlier. Mm-hmm. And the Jews were very well familiar with that. They were always interested in mathematics, astronomy, numerical cycles, but they chose to have, according to divine revelation, according to angelic teaching, a year of 364 because they needed it to be divided by 7, by 13, by 52, anything which divided by 4, by 7, and 13, and the only available number is 364. So what do they do with the missing day? All right, let's go on. Okay, every seventh year, there is a follow year. In the follow year, not in a regular year, in the follow year, when you don't work and you don't have to come to the temple, the priest would add uncounted week to cover for the lost day of the previous six years, okay? Every 28 years, they would add two weeks to cover for the last quarter of a day, Hmm. it's mathematics. Now, that last sentence that I said is based on the studies of the late Professor Shmariao Talmud, the first scholar of the calendar, and he said that we did not find textual attestment or textual testimony to the supposition of the uncounted week and the uncounted uh, two weeks in the uh, Jubilee year. But he said it is absolutely necessary to keep the... Synchronization. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Synchronization is the best word for mm-hmm. that because mm-hmm. all what they were doing is synchronization. Now, how and what they were synchronizing? The book of uh, First Chronicles in chapter 24 is telling us that David, the Neim uh, Zmirot Israel, the poet of Israel, who was considered in the library of the Dead Sea Scrolls as a poet, as a prophet, and as a genius, he was arranging the priestly watches to synchronize the circles of time, the sevenfold circles of time, the day-to-day sunrise and sunset, the day-to-day additional uh, sacrifices, all of that was done by the priestly watches in order to keep the eternal cycles of time. How did they keep it? All right. Every day of 364 days every year, they would offer korban olatatamit, the daily sacrifice. 
Olah is a sacrifice mm-hmm. in biblical Hebrew mm-hmm. because the flame from the sacrifice is rising up and making a wonderful smell. So on every day, the priest and only the priest, I repeat, the priest and only the priest were offering daily sacrifice in sunrise and in sunset. David had written 364 daily songs for the sunrise and sunset for every day of the offering. After he had composed those 364 daily sacrifice songs, Mm -hmm. he continued to compose 52 songs of the Sabbath sacrifice. That was the book that I found in Oberlin in 1987 that Carol Newsom Mm -hmm. had edited. At that time, I didn't know all of that, but as I said, I was interested in angels and priests, and that was the book that was written on it for the first time. Anyhow, we found in Qumran 13 songs out of the 52 Sabbath song sacrifice Mm -hmm. that David Naim's Mirot Israel had written. Hmm, fascinating. We know that all this list is utterly correct. Now, how the song starts, and that's what's the matter. The song starts like that. This is the song of the first Sabbath of the first month. Hmm. And what is the date of the first Sabbath in the first month? Always the fourth of the first month. Because if the calendar always starts on Wednesday, because Wednesday is the day of the creation of the luminaries. If we start on Wednesday, the first of the first. So Wednesday is the first. Thursday is the second, Friday is the third, and Sabbath inevitably is the fourth. Next Sabbath is the 11th, next Sabbath is the 18th, next Sabbath is the 25th, and so on and so forth. This last 13th Shabbat is always, always the 28th of the third month. So we know always what would be the exact date of every day. The last day of every quarter would be Tuesday. The last Sabbath of every quarter would always be the 28th of the third month, of the sixth month, of the ninth month, and the twelfth month. They had a wonderful mathematical calendar, genius. And if you would start precisely on the vernal equinox, everything works fantastically. Now, on top of that, here comes the bonus. If you would keep my Sabbath, image of Tishmore, you're stopping every seventh day. If you would keep my Moadim every seven months, there are seven holidays, only in the first seven months between Nisan and Tishrei. If you would keep my holidays, then I, God Almighty, would give you the seven species that the land of Israel was blessed with it. All of them would grow in the first seven months, and I would make sure <laughs> about it because I will give you the water from heaven. Israel is a desert. Mm-hmm. We don't have rivers. We wow. don't have the Euphrates or the Tigris mm-hmm. or the Mississippi. We have one little Jordan which cannot give water to the whole entire country. We have one living water lake, that is the Sea of Galilee, and one salt water lake, that is the Dead Sea. But that's very far from being sufficient to irrigate the country. We are basically desert. We absolutely depend on water from heaven called rain. We have many words for rain. Yoreh, Malkosh, Geshem, Matam, because we need so much of it. So the biblical deal is, the priestly biblical deal, if you would keep my precise calendar of Shabbatot and Mu'adim, according to the calendar that I explained just now, that you start on Wednesday, that you stop every seventh day, 13 times every season, I go, 
promise you that the seven species that the land of Israel is blessed with them would grow precisely on the following day. The seora, the gun, would always start to be ripe for cutting, for harvest, in the 26th of the first month. Seven weeks later, the chita, that is the Mm -hmm. uh, wheat, would be ready for harvest in the 15th of the third month. Seven weeks later, the uh, tirosh, which is anavim, the grapes, would be ready for uh, batzil, you know. The Mm -hmm. point is that there is seven weeks difference between Mm -hmm. the first harvest of the barley, the second harvest of the wheat, the third harvest of the wine, and the fourth harvest of the oil. All Mm -hmm. of that is between Nisan Letishrei. And the last third species, which is pomegranate, date, and figs, all of them are brought to the temple in the seventh month, in the seventh holiday, Mm. Sukkot, which is a holiday of seven Mm. days. It's really wonderful perception of connection between heavenly grace and human commitment of rest. Now, nobody asks you to do anything. You have to rest every seven days. You have to learn to give the land an opportunity to rest mm-hmm, every mm-hmm. seventh year. You have to give everything an undo, a rest, a shmita, every seven sevenths of years. If you would do those resting cycles, mm-hmm. eternal, calculated, pre-calculated, precise, then the harvest and the crops would be multiple mm-hmm. and you would never be hungry and you would never have to go down to mm-hmm. Egypt as hungry people looking for food. You would never be enslaved. Hmm, very accurate and fascinating. It's all connected. This is the priestly order. What I would say then to this uh, uh, professor is that if in ancient days there were problems with our harvest seasons, if things were getting completely out of synchronization, then we would have to say, hmm, what are we not doing that's causing this problem? Exactly and quite so. This is Real Israel Talk Radio, episode 98. And today's show is part two of a multi-part series on the Dead Sea Scrolls, helping us to unpack some of the details. We've been talking with Professor Dr. Rachel Elior the John and Golda Cohen Professor of Jewish Philosophy and Mystical Thought at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. Since the early 1970s, Professor Elior's academic positions include visiting lecturer at University College London, Princeton University, Chicago University, and research fellow at Oxford. Professor Elior has also earned many academic excellence awards from a large cadre of well-respected universities and study centers from around the world. Dr. Elior's books, awards, and writings are quite extensive. Yob Willing will return next week for part three and the sectarian Qumran community. If you have any questions or comments about any of our programs, navigate over to our website at www. Dot cominghome.co.il. Yah willing, we'll see you next week. I'm Avi Ben Mordechai, and this is Real Israel Talk Radio. <laughs>